1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephratite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost at the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew why Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For, he, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This morning, please keep your Bibles open to 1 Samuel. Uh, we will be looking at that in, at length this morning. Um, we are in our sixth week of the History of Redemption sermon series alongside the Bible reading plan and reflections that can be found at BibleTogether.com. And, and here in the sixth week, we're well into the story. So I thought, let's just begin by just recapping very quickly what the last few weeks have, have brought us through, beginning in Genesis, where we saw God the Creator establishing uh, all that is, which is itself an act of generosity, God's generosity to give being to non-being. And then he establishes mankind in his image in creation. But by the time we get to Genesis 3, this people have rebelled, right? They've rebelled against their maker, their generous maker, 
in sin, and they've fallen under the curse of death. And so we're, we're only three chapters in to the story, and already the issue is revealed. And then we go all the way to the end of Genesis with Joseph. And at the end, Joseph stands at the end of the, the line of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph is the son of Jacob. And God used Joseph to rescue this growing family from a deadly famine. And the way that God did that, if you recall, was by bringing this, this new growing family of Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, bringing that family down to Egypt where they would grow into a great multitude. And so this is where we end in Genesis at the end of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And then, by the time we get just a few chapters into Exodus, this great multitude that descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now known as the children or people of Israel. You remember that Jacob's name was changed to Israel, so it would make sense that his descendants would be called the children of Israel or the people of Israel. But what we find is that they are not merely rescued from the famine in Egypt. Now they are under the oppression of the Pharaoh in Egypt, in Exodus. And God reveals himself to Moses, and he declares to Moses his name, Yahweh, the Lord, and he promises rescue, a rescue of the people out from the hand of Pharaoh. God would demonstrate the, the strength of his right hand against Pharaoh and establish a people to himself and for his worship. And we came to Leviticus 16, moving well forward in the story. God has brought his people out of Egypt. We call that the Exodus. And God has given them his law at Sinai. And he's given them a day, a specific day for worship. And on that specific day for worship called the Day of Atonement, they would gather for worship through sacrifice. That's so important. There is no such thing as worship of the Lord on this side of the fall that is not through sacrifice. And it's one of the things that the Day of Atonement holds out for us. And on that Day of Atonement, the Lord promises that he would cleanse the people of their sin. That's huge. That's huge. It's it's in the promise. He says, as you do this, I will cleanse you of your sin. I will make you clean and forgive you of your sin and all of their failure to keep the law. I've suggested that the idea of atonement is the central hope of the Scriptures. That day of of, of atonement is essential for us to understand. Basically, when we say at Cross Point Coast that we are gospel-centered, what we are saying is we are atonement-centered. I want you to hear that now. Every time we say gospel-centered, Christ-centered, cross-centered. When we say all of those things, we're saying we are atonement-centered. Then we came to the fifth week, just last week, God's covenant of blessing and curses and return. In Deuteronomy 28 through 30, the Lord established his covenant with Israel throughout the whole of Deuteronomy. And now we have this covenant renewal at the end of Deuteronomy. And we find that the covenant is a covenant in Deuteronomy 28, a covenant of blessing, and curse. And by the time we get to Deuteronomy 30, we find out, yeah, it's going to be both. You, you will be cursed because you're not going to keep the covenant, so you're going to lose out on the blessing or you're going to get the curse. But we also saw that the covenant established by the promise of the Lord is one to restore all who repent 
and turn to him, and the Lord will give them a new heart. So it's not enough to say that it's a covenant of blessing and curse. It is also a covenant of blessing and curse, and ultimately, redemption. Today, we transition from the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, and we're going to, uh, those first five books of the Bible, they, they give to us a revelation of God, of creation, of the law, of an establishment of a people. And now we move into the books that are known as the history the books of history, their, their revelation of God's providence in the midst of this nation of Israel, these children or people of Israel. Today we'll see God's nature of grace to make his strength known in the midst of weakness. It's a theme that runs through particularly First and Second Samuel, but really through the whole of the history from here on out. God's grace made known making his strength known, the strength of his grace known through weakness. Heavenly Father, we pray that this message would come crystal clear to us, that you are strong, you are the Lord Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, giver to us of our image, that who we are is according to your own design and purpose. And yet we've rebelled against that. Lord, I pray that it would become crystal clear to us that we are a people of weakness. But Lord, this is your playground. This is where you work so powerfully well. Lord, I pray that you would make your strength known in our weakness. To your glory, our good. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. What we need to do before we open up to to 1 Samuel and start talking about this uh, Elkanah and and Hannah and Samuel and all that comes after, we really need to tell the story from Moses to Samuel just very quickly. We left off at the end of Deuteronomy. And if you look, if you're following along, if you go to the end of Deuteronomy, the next book is not 1 Samuel, is it? It actually, the next book is, is Joshua. And then after Joshua, we have Judges, and after Judges, we have Ruth, and, and then finally we come to 1 Samuel. So how did we get here a couple books later? Well, we came to the end of the Pentateuch with Deuteronomy, and we pass through these other books. In Joshua, the, the successor to Moses, the people entered the land, crossing over the river Jordan and entered that land of Canaan. We see in Joshua 8, this is a really good one if you're taking notes, make sure you look at it. Joshua 8 is a covenant renewal where the people remember the covenant from Deuteronomy. And in remembering that covenant, God also divides the land by inheritance, by tribe, in giving, giving each of the tribes a portion of the land in Canaan. And the book of Joshua opens with a failure of the tribes of Israel to complete the conquest, failing to drive out the Canaanites who would become two things. The Canaanites, they failed to drive out because of their disobedience to the Lord. They're falling short of, of what he had called them to in the land. The Canaanites become, first of all, a persistent hindrance. That's an understatement. If you read the story, it's more than that. A, a persistent hindrance both uh, to the Israelites' ability to dwell in the land in peace, and secondly, a hindrance as it regards their tendency to wander off after the gods of the other people. So a hindrance to their their physical peace in the land, and also to a hindrance to their peace with God in the land. 
And then we come to Judges. That's sort of the story of Joshua, a story of, of conquering and moving into the land and all of its portions. By the time we come to the Judges, we meet people like Deborah. We meet judges like Gideon and Samson and many others. Here's uh, the judges' own summary of what's happening during this portion of the history. Judges chapter 2, verses 16 through 19. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out from the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of the enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. This is often called the cycle of the judges. But you heard what was in the middle of that, right? We can talk about the cycle of the judges and dwell upon the people and their behaviors, but you see what's in the middle is the Lord was with the judge and had pity on the people. Don't miss that. We, we have even a note of that redemption theme being played out. Yes, blessing. Yes, curse. Yes, redemption. The Lord with the people. Our, our book, after the book of Judges and this cycle that runs all the way through it, we come to Ruth. Let me just say this about Ruth. If you haven't recently already, read it. Like, just read it. Go this week Open up the book of Ruth and just read the whole thing. It's not particularly long. Read it in one sitting. It takes place in the midst of the days of the judges, and it establishes the line of David in the midst of these difficult days. You don't actually meet David in the book of Ruth, but you meet David's great-great-grandmother there. And so here's God establishing a king and a line that would lead up to that king that we're not going to meet until well into to 1 Samuel right here in the midst of this cycle of judges. God is at work establishing his rule in Israel. There are a few things that remain constant throughout the story up to this point, the first of which is the Lord is sovereign, holy, and gracious throughout the whole of the story up to this point. But secondly, humanity is fickle, rebellious, and needy. Are you starting to get the characters, right? That's pretty much lays out all of the characters in the story. God is sovereign, holy, and gracious, and humanity is fickle, rebellious, and needy. God's law reveals at least two things, and it's essentially these two things, that God is holy and we are not. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like something that we confess week after week in our prayer of confession? We also learn that worship is only possible through sacrifice, sacrificial atonement is the only hope of God with us. While we have glimpses of God's redemption in the midst of the law and the covenant, the feasts and the sacrifices, we have little glimpses of redemption. There remains something yet to be revealed, something that's mysterious in what is all going on, some, to end a cycle of rebellion and bring about final redemption. And in the story thus far, we haven't seen it yet, have we? We won't see it for a while, but we'll hear the notes. 
And it will become clear that there is something that the Lord has not yet revealed, a mystery that will be revealed. Now we know that mystery is revealed in Christ, but the note to trust and believe is already there. Today we get another glimpse of the nature of the final redemption yet to be revealed. And the thing that I think God has for us today to see and to tutor us so that we can understand the mystery when it is revealed is this. We see that the Lord makes his strength known in weakness. That is the type for us today of which Jesus is the antitype. We are going to the one that reveals the strength of our God through weakness. So here we are in First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel has three main characters in it, you would think. If you're not paying attention to see the main character who is with them always, these three characters, Samuel, Saul, and David, were introduced to these sort of three rulers of the people of Israel. First and second Samuel tells the story of Samuel, who's actually the final judge of Israel, which is kind of a big deal. The age of the judges is coming to an end, okay? Well, what comes after the judges? Well, Samuel is going to anoint a man named Saul, a tall, strong, clear ruler of the people, right? And he's going to be the first king of Israel, and he will fail. And he will have the kingdom ripped from him, just like the robe that is ripped, as we see later in the story. And then we're introduced to David. David, who is not tall, who is not great, who is the younger son who will become the greatest king of Israel until the king, the antitype king, the one to whom we are going, King Jesus. Uh, there's a, this story in First and Second Samuel, as you read it, and you'll see an, a number of things. You're going to see a number of songs. You're going to see a number of stories being played out, and there's a bit of a theme that arises uh, it has been argued that, that First and Second Samuel presents a story of reversals. Here's the way that one a biblical theologian puts it. In uh, it's, honestly, it's my favorite biblical theology called God's glory and salvation through judgment. Here's what he says: This narrative is bound together by three poems. One at the beginning, First Samuel chapter two. We're going to look at it briefly this morning. One in the middle, and one at the end. Reversal is the rhyme and reason of these poems. The mighty, handsome, seemingly impressive people of the world, such as Panina, Saul, Goliath, Absalom, are exposed as bankrupt, exposed as weak, as, as small and weak, infertile, unimpressive. All of these are Uh, such as Hannah, Samuel, Jonathan, David, all of these are exalted. In Samuel, the important distinctions between the worldly strong and the worldly weak are that those who are weak in the world's eyes rely on Yahweh and repent of their sin. This is a theme that runs out through the whole of the book, and already we're confronted by this question. Like, you and I are confronted with this question. Whose kingdom do you seek? Are you strong? Are you wise? Are you gifted? Do you contribute something great to a kingdom? 
You may grow mighty in the kingdom of the world, but you are opposed by the Lord Almighty. This is a theme that runs as a thread through the books of First and Second Samuel. But those who are seeking the Lord, even in the midst of their weakness, they see their own weakness and they seek the Lord and they repent of their sin are those who come under redemption promise, God's covenant hope, those who are granted a new heart. I hope that you're well situated in First and Second Samuel. You know where you are in the story of the scriptures up to this point. You're situated there. And so now we're ready to look at what was read just a moment ago. You know what God's doing in these two volumes. So let's see what God is doing in this first chapter of these two volumes. I want to remind you of the story that we just read. We're introduced to a number of characters. We're in- introduced to Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah and Penina. We're told that Penina has many children, but Hannah has none. Right? This probably explains why Elkanah had two wives. Hannah, whom he loves, it's clear, he goes at great lengths to tell her this. He loved her. Hannah, whom he loves, was probably his first wife, but because she was unable to give him a child, he married Panina. Now, repeatedly, this practice is presented negatively in Scripture. Let us be very clear. Over and over again, we meet this sort of practice. And, and each time, it is in the midst of great trouble, from Absalom with Sarah and Hagar to Solomon and his many wives, negative, never presented positively. This practice is not only contrary to God's design as revealed in Genesis, it also brings nothing but sorrow and strife and tension in each household where it takes place. Let's be clear, this is what we can read in the text. Even more, we see what God does. What does God do? Well, just like Sarah of old, Hannah would bear a child. By God's grace, where Abraham or Elkanah would move forward outside of God's grace. Hannah is distressed in our passage. We're going to spend a good deal of time reflecting on that, seeing it in the passage. Hannah is distressed by her desire for a a child, and, and Penina is cruel, and she provokes her to irritation. Hannah goes before the Lord, the Lord of the sanctuary in heartfelt prayer. And she's asking of the Lord for a child and promising the Lord that if you give me a child, the child will belong to you, Lord. It's beautiful. An image of what is real of every gift that we receive from the Lord. And, and, and our response of, of dedication to the Lord it isn't just a formality. A response of dedication is a genuine, actual giving over to the Lord, his purposes and his glory. Eli, the priest, first misunderstands Hannah's weeping, and then he blesses Hannah, and the Lord provides a child. That child's name is Samuel. Asked of the Lord is his name. He promises The the Lord provides the child to Hannah, Samuel, and after he's weaned, Hannah brings him to the priest Eli, and and Samuel would belong to the Lord, and he would serve the Lord in the sanctuary all of his days. And, And Samuel, let's be clear, is one of the great heroes of Scripture. We know almost nothing negative about Samuel. 
Like, that's just not true of very many people that we read about in this book. But Samuel is a wonderful character devoted to the Lord all his days, even before his days. I'm going to do something for the majority of the remainder of our time. Uh, typically, we don't do this, but, but today, it's here. I think it's, it's a main point of the passage. I want to ask this question. Who is Hannah? Who is Hannah? Typically, the, the point of the stories is not for us to pay a great deal of attention to an individual in the text and then try to be like them, because they're sinners. <laughs> like, they're sinners. Why do you, why do you want to be like a, a, a sinner? What I need to see is I need to see the Lord. I need to see who he is. I need to see the greatness of his grace that it would be situated like a sinner before his grace. And that's actually what we find in Hannah. There are four things that really give us a framework, a framework for the story of redemption that God's telling through the book of First and Second Samuel. The author here is giving us this framework in this beautiful, compelling woman Hannah. What's the first of the four things that we see about Hannah? We see that she is sorrowful. Sorrowful. She's barren. She's provoked to irritation. She weeps. She doesn't just weep. She weeps such that she cannot eat. You know weeping like that. You know what it is to be in the midst of that weeping, to have someone provoke you? We cannot underestimate the sorrow of Hannah. There are certain sorrows in the world that are so troubling that we ought to be cautious even to speak of them in order not to make light of the sorrow. There are sorrows like that, are there not? Surely, the longing of a woman for a child who is unable to conceive is among those great sorrows. And this is where we are today. In our text, considering that greatest of sorrows, the sort of sorrow that would drive you to the inability to eat and and to a sense of mocking, even if the mocker's voice isn't heard. But here, Hannah is actively mocked. She has an enemy in the passage. Why, Why does the scripture bring up so much sorrow? Well, what does the scriptures tell us about sorrow? What what do the scriptures tell us? Do we not know from Romans, weep with those who weep? Well, here we see one who is weeping, Hannah. Do you have a sense within yourself of a a need to to weep with her? Do you find cause for, for mourning with Hannah, a real person who lived and suffered this great sorrow? There's no sense. There's no sense but cruelty to tell the one who is sorrowful to rejoice, but rather to join with the one who is sorrow in their mourning. Here's how Charles Spurgeon puts it. Now, it's idle to tell the night that it should be brilliant as the day and bid the winter put on the flowers of summer. And equally vain is it to chide the broken heart. Oh, that's true. That's true. And for this reason, the scriptures tell us, weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. I would argue that we ought to sit with Hannah in her sorrow. Not read this just as a story, 
but as a person, a person who suffered greatly, one of the greatest sufferings. And perhaps as we sit with Hannah in her sorrow, perhaps we can allow the grace of God's word to invite our own mourning as we sit alongside of her. Inevitably, when we mourn with those who mourn, we're bringing some sorrow of our own to sit alongside of the mourner. It's the nature of empathy. So, some, some means of connection. I, I know sorrow. I don't know your sorrow. I don't know that greatest of sorrows. But I know what it is to weep. Are you sorrowful? I know the answer to that question for some, not for all in the room. Are you sorrowful? Hannah provides an invitation to you who are sorrowful, brother and sister, to weep. Like this morning, as you are in this text, to weep. There's another thing that we see about Hannah. And honestly, I think this one brings me to even greater tears. Hannah isn't only sorrowful, she's lovable. I have in my notes next to the word lovable to, to say the word tender. She's tender. Hannah, in verses 5 and verse 8 at the end, it's clear that Hannah is loved by Elkanah. Not not like just sort of a commitment that he made when he married her. He finds her lovable. And he finds her tender to his sidling up alongside of to weep with her and to bring her comfort. Neither Hannah's trouble nor her sorrow are enough to dissuade Elkanah to love her. I'm inclined nonetheless to think that this says more about Hannah than it does about Elkanah. I'm inclined to to ask how many in their sorrow would push away all who would draw near in comfort and love. I know what that's like to be so sorrowful that someone tries to come alongside of me and say, I love you and, and I lash out in my sorrow. How many have become thorns themselves in their grief to those who would Love them. But that's not Hannah in this passage. Hannah, Hannah both draws out the tenderness of Elkanah and receives his love as comfort. What grace to both bear sorrow. This is Hannah. She both bears sorrow and she receives comfort. Do you know that that is one of the difficult labors of one who is sorrowful? To labor, to receive Comfort, Uh, are you sorrowful? I've already said, Hannah invites you to weep. And you ought to weep. You ought to mourn. But she also provides for you an image of a tender spirit who is comforted by love. And so I invite you, mourner, one who weeps, one who is sorrowful, sit down beside Hannah. Be tender to her and and know the tenderness and and perhaps consider to receive the tenderness of those who are around you. Hannah's lovable. Is her sorrow cured by Elkanah? I mean, you can look at it. Elkanah, her husband, said to Hannah in verse 8, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? begging with her, receive my comfort. And she's not cured, but she is comforted in the midst of her sorrow. She has one sitting beside her 
in love. Hannah is sorrowful. Hannah weeps. Hannah is lovable, tender. And Hannah is third, prayerful. Hannah, having received the love of Elkanah, draws near to the Lord. Do you see that? It's another one of the temptations of one who is sorrowful, yes, to, to, to become a thorn to the others who would draw near to you. Yes, that's a, that's a temptation to become hardened and bitter in your sorrow. But also another tendency is to absorb all of the love and lose the need to go before the Lord. Because that's when sorrow seeks commiseration, seeks only weeping with those who weep and does not turn from that commiseration to prayer. Hannah asks the Lord in verse 10. We're told she was deeply distressed, prayed to the Lord, and wept bitterly. Her sorrow is, not, is, is only consoled as she brings her ask to the Lord, you see. Yes, she receives the comfort with tenderness from her husband, but she's not consoled until she brings her ask to the Lord, Hannah in her sorrow, remains tender, but her tenderness brings her to hope, not in her husband. Her tenderness brings her to hope in the Lord. It's easy for the sorrowful and the suffering to make their sorrow a hardened, immovable image. It's easy for our sorrow to become an idol of sorts, to craft it and mold it and and, and mold it out of stone so that it's sure and your sorrow is immovable as though your sorrow itself was steadfast and sure, faithful and true. But Hannah calls, O Lord of hosts. That's her words. O Lord of hosts. In her weeping, she, she has sorrow. It's just not immovable. Her sorrow is not steadfast, faithful, and true. The Lord is the Lord of hosts, also translated, O Lord Almighty. The suffering is real and the sorrow is deep, but the Lord alone is sure of steadfast love and mercy. And Hannah remembers that. Hannah is prayerful. And third, and fourth, while Hannah is weeping, Hannah is, is lovable and tender and, and prayerful, what we find is Hannah's actually singing. We didn't read it this morning, but I commend to you 1 Samuel chapter 2. And, and you see this incredible song, this poem, this prayer before the Lord. A song like this in chapter 2 only comes from a sorrow that comes in chapter 1. Do you know how you get a chapter 2? It's right there in the middle of whatever sorrow you're in. There will be a chapter 2. There is a song yet awaiting. Here's what she says. My heart exalts in the lifting of my sorrows. Ah, it's not, it's not what it says. Chapter, my, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. And this is so important. There is no rock like our God. The sorrow, has, the sorrow was never Hannah's rock. The sorrow was never a rock that is immovable. There is no rock like her 
God. And, and I'm reminded of one of my favorite passages from the Psalms, Psalms 30. It's a psalm that's good to go to in the middle of mourning. Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I give thanks to you forever. This movement from sorrow to singing is what 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel are all about. It's the theme of the whole section of Scripture. In the midst of weakness of the people, in the midst of their brokenness and their sin, their sorrow and their weeping often brought upon themselves, in the midst of the weakness of David in his repentance and in his faith, In the midst of sorrow and need, the promises and hope of the Lord are revealed. This is the theme of 1 and 2 Samuel. And really, isn't it the theme of redemption? Isn't it so very often the theme of our lives that in the midst of sorrow and need, the promise and hope of the Lord is revealed and a song is written and a song is sung? I would argue that this is the pattern not only of 1 and 2 Samuel, I would argue that First and Second Samuel are a type for which, gospel, for which Christ and his gospel are the antitype. They are a type that point to Christ and his gospel. It's at the moment of his death, at that moment that Jesus becomes the perfect atoning sacrifice. What moment? The moment of his death, the sorrow of the cross. And let's remember, the sorrow of the cross, in the face of which the Lord himself wept most bitterly. Far more depth of bitter tears. For Hannah, it was like unto starving. For Jesus, it was like unto death. And it's right there in the sorrow of the cross that he is high and lifted up. And he is declared In that place of sorrow and in that death, it's there that he declares, Father, forgive them. And he declares, today you will be with me in paradise. That's a song. That's something that we celebrate and for which we have gratitude. And when do we get the words to that song? On the death sorrow tree. You see, first and second Samuel and and the suffering of Hannah, and others that follow with David and others. It's a type for Christ, the sufferer. Our Jesus is most sorrowful. Our Jesus is most lovable, tender. Our Jesus is most prayerful. And our Jesus is our strength. And he has become our song. I read it to you at the beginning of the service. Fair are the meadows, fairer still the woodlands. Fair and lovable is Hannah. Commendable is her grief and her prayer and her song. Robed in the blooming garb of spring, Jesus is fairer. Jesus is purer, who makes the woeful heart to sing. We could ask, who is Hannah? And I think that we would do well, like not just for these few moments that we have in our service today, 
But during the course of our week, like tomorrow morning, wake and, and sidle up next to and weep with Hannah and, and perhaps let the Lord and his spirit and his record in this word weep with you. He's good at this. He knows what it is to draw near to the brokenhearted. Let him weep with you. Let him tutor you in his song. I have two questions before we go. Have you been honest with the Lord, before the Lord, and before those who love you? You know that there are people who love you. Have you been honest with them about your grief? Have you told them about your sorrow? Perhaps the bitterness of sorrow has grown like a thorn and a barb for you, a barb which pricks and catches those who would draw near to you, and you wonder, where have they all gone? I don't mean to add sorrow upon sorrow. I just hope to give you a context and and a perspective and a beautiful tutor for your sorrow. I invite you not to move one inch, if that's you, If you have not shared your sorrow and your grief, don't move one inch from 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. Like, we're going to keep going, like, next week, and you're welcome to sit, and you're welcome to participate. I hope that you'll sing and listen. But don't move one inch from 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Weep with her, pray with her, and by God's grace, sing with her that she would become for you, by the Spirit's inspiration in 1 Samuel, a tutor to Christ, who is your comfort. I agree with Charles Spurgeon. I do not want to tell you who are in the darkest night, be bright as day. But I do want to tell you that your sorrow is not unmovable. Your sorrow is not steadfast. There is none holy like the Lord. There's none beside you, Lord. There is no rock like our God. Do you believe that? Will you let someone else sidle up to you and and faultingly, haltingly, erroneously tutor you with those words? And finally, in your sorrow, do you rehearse the lines of redemption song? I mean, you're rehearsing. You're not quite ready to sing it. It's not ready for its big performance. Our our great redemption song, we're still learning it, aren't we? We're not particularly good at singing it sometimes. Hannah did not know the outcome of her prayer when she stood there at Shiloh, mumbling, just mumbling. Eli thought she was drunk. She was so broken and weeping in her sorrow. But she knew Even though she didn't know the outcome of her prayer, she knew the Lord, her rock. But she didn't know how that rock would work out in this great sorrow in her life. She didn't know. But brothers and sisters, I hope that we feel the sorrow all the more of our sin. And I've been speaking to you like you might have some circumstantial sorrow. And I know many do. But there is not one here today that does not have the greatest grief the greatest sorrow, the greatest cause for weeping, that is your own sin. I hope that today that we will weep most bitterly over the disaster, the horror of our own rebellion against the holy God.
Do you know that weeping? It's a long-established Christian doctrine doctrine that, that true repentance is always accompanied by true contrition, sorrow over our sin. Maybe what I need to do is I need to sidle up next to to Hannah and say, I see your sorrow. I caused mine. I've rebelled against my God, and it has brought me great grief. And then we hear the Lord himself say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We may not know how any particular sorrow in this life will work its way out, but but we have clearly revealed and proclaimed how our greatest sorrow has been atoned for. How much more will he deal with all of the other circumstances of our lives? How much more do we know that in Christ, death is no more? (laughs) I can't think about these things without knowing the final song and the context from which we will We will write many, many more songs. What's the loudest cry of heaven? What's the great cry from the throne of heaven? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Isn't that the whole theme? Isn't that what we've been learning so far? This is the work of God's presence among the people. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God, like an Elkanah drawing up next to Hannah, except for it's the Lord God, our maker, drawing near to his people. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And out of that great sorrow moment of the cross, he has secured victory. Rehearse that. Write in your sorrow, rehearse your coming song. Heavenly Father, we have great cause for sorrow. In our sin, And in our circumstances, Lord, we confess it. In our hearts, in this room, we're confessing many things. Many circumstances, many trials, many griefs, and great sin. And Lord, we cry out to you. We know the mystery revealed, that which was hidden. We knew there was something more as we read the story. That which is hidden has been revealed to us. We've seen the Christ. We've seen that in his suffering, he is victorious. And so, God, we come to you. We draw near to you. We allow your word to be a tutor to us, to point us to the Christ. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be that great tutor, that you would remind us of the truth of your word, not only this morning, but in the days to come, that you would make us tender to one another, not only to be willing to mourn with those who mourn, but to receive comfort from our brothers and sisters, that we would pray to you, and that we would rehearse and remember the theme of heaven's song. Lord, we trust you for these things. We hope in you. We cry out to you for relief and for redemption. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in that rock's name. We pray in the name of Jesus. 
Amen.